Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Full Cast and Crew podcast. This is episode 150, and I'm going to be talking about Michael Mann's film, The Insider. Now, we've done a couple of Michael Mann films on the podcast before. I've done Thief with my guest James Kittle, and I did Heat as a solo episode, and I think that's it so far. I may get to some others. I'm going to do an episode just talking a bit about The Insider, about Michael Mann's career at this time, some of the incredible casting and great performances in this film, and some of my reactions from rescreening it, which I did just a couple days ago in anticipation of recording this episode. Now, The Insider, viewed today, is such a one of those films that's such an odd time capsule to bring us back to a time that we don't live in anymore. Let's start with a time when a movie studio would spend upwards of 90 to $100 million making an extremely talky two-hour, 45-minute corporate intrigue film without car chases, gunshots, explosions, or superhero conventions. Just a straight-up, very intelligent uh, lean forward, pay attention type film with big time movie stars it represented even for the studio, a pretty big swing, which they probably wouldn't have taken. I believe it was Disney of all studios. They probably wouldn't have taken this swing had not Michael Mann's previous film been heat from 1995, because that was a hit and was and remains such a touchstone in the crime film genre that I'm sure Michael Mann was enjoying one of those delicious directorial moments where he could do whatever he wanted to. And what he wanted to do was The Insider. As I understand it, this movie is based upon another bit of a time capsule here. Remember when Vanity Fair magazine was in its heyday in the mid-90s, in the 80s and the 90s? What's interesting is... You know, I certainly recall being a religious reader of Vanity Fair in the 90s. And in the May 1996 issue of Vanity Fair, the journalist Marie Brenner wrote a investigative article called The Man Who Knew Too Much. And it was about Jeffrey Wigand, who was a tobacco industry whistleblower and contained all of his life story of working for Brown and Williamson Tobacco Company and what happened to him in terms of the research he was doing. And some of these elements, well, it, it wasn't that Michael Mann read this article, said, that's my next film, optioned it, and moved forward. That's not quite how it happened, as I understand it. As I understand it, Michael Mann was talking with Lowell Bregman, who is played by Al Pacino in the film. And Lowell was a 60 Minutes producer who worked on a wide variety of complicated stories all around the world. And I think he and Mann were talking more about something to do with the arms trade, I want to say. Something a little bit maybe more in the, the Michael Mann seeming wheelhouse. But as they were talking, Lowell was telling him about some of the difficulties he was having with 60 Minutes with CBS and with this piece. And at some point, Mann switched and said, hey, that's what we should be doing. Um the real appeal to this, of, uh, to me, of, of the film was was to uh, 
was to was to involve audience in very as intensely as I could do into characters who were 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 very real. And the the kind of awkwardness of Jeffrey Wigand, I was stunned by the humanity of it. The just the, the raw humanity of it. And so it was to bring Jeffrey Wigand onto 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 the screen as a character and to see if I could get audience to be fused as, as, as subjectively relates to, Jeff, to Jeffrey as possible. That was the motive to do it. And then with Lowell Bergman, who doesn't back down, he doesn't back off, he doesn't fade the play. And both men, who are as polarized from each other as possible, both struggling against very large size adversaries. That, that's the real emotional and dramatic and intellectual appeal of, of, of the material I thought was you know, so stunning. So from that point, the article was optioned. Michael Mann worked on a screenplay version of it. As I say, it's often a podcast about the sound of typing. Yes, Eric Roth. Brilliant screenwriter. He's an Oscar winner for Forrest Gump. Nominated for this film, Munich, Curious Case of Benjamin Button. <clears throat> and A Star is Born. He also wrote The Horse Whisperer, Ali. Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, the Kurosawa film, Rhapsody in August. Anyway, they wrote a screenplay, and as I said, Disney agreed to pony up $90 million uh, to make this film. And I'm not sure how it came about that Al was the choice. Uh, I keep saying Bregman, Bergman, Lowell Bergman, sorry, Lowell. Al Pacino. First and only choice for to play Lowell Bergman? First and only choice. Simply because you loved Pacino or simply because you thought there was something about this role was because right Because I for thought it, it would be great to have Al play a character he's never played before. Which is? Which is a, a, an intellectual worker. Right. A journalist. A man who is, um, who is world-wise, who is as facile in dealing with uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon, as he is dealing with uh, police corruption in New Orleans, as he is dealing with the Leaf Blunders manual from Brown and Williamson. And he's never played that kind of a character before. So the idea of bringing Al to that character, I thought would be very exciting because it would be very fresh for both of us. What's interesting is, for Mann, this is such a different film than any film he's ever made before or since. And for Pacino, it's really a very different film than any he had made before or since. And as such, I think it stands as, it's interesting to me for that because I'm a big Michael Mann fan, as I said. And while Pacino is not up there with my most favorite of actors, I certainly respect and appreciate him. I've loved him in so many movies, of course, the Godfather films, except for number three, Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, uh, on and on and on. I mean, he's been great in so many things. So it's... What is it that keeps him at arm's length for me? I don't know. There's something stylistic about how it's always Al Pacino. Uh, not that big time movie stars de necessarily disappear into roles like character actors, but I think that what I appreciate, for example, in you know The Color of Money, a big movie star like Paul Newman, which we just did on the podcast last week, for all of his movie starness, Newman really approaches things like a character actor and he does imbue his characters with a certain Newman-esque quality, a fire that burns within, 
a awareness of one's own limitations and the quest to find the mech, the, the lock to the, the key to unlock the mechanism to allow those hopes and dreams to come true. Those are all kinds of the hallmarks of great Paul Newman performances. Someone who's underestimated, uh, someone who has underestimated himself. Pacino, of course, you know, famous for being loud, being brash, for chewing scenery, strange noises, wild gesticulations. He does get to do some of that here, but somehow it's because it's so different for him. I think it really suits him. It gives him a little bit of a container uh, from which to operate. And his Pacino-ness is present, but he he has to embody a real person, which I think is can be tricky, but also, I think, man at all discovered on this film that it can be liberating through limitation sometimes. So, for example, Christopher Plummer has to believably portray Mike Wallace, who he passably resembles in some regard, but much like Pacino playing Lowell Bergman, man is opting for an essence of a quality rather than a physical simulacrum of an actual person. So while Christopher Plummer is doing a pretty spot-on vocal impersonation of Mike Wallace, he's also embodying Mike Wallace-ness in a way that transcends whether he looks like Mike Wallace or not. And I think the same can be said for, for the other key actors, including Russell Crowe, who I'll talk about in a second. So the film, with its casting in place, and I read one article that said that it was Al Pacino who recommended Christopher Plummer. I'm not sure I read another thing that said that it was Mann who recommended Christopher Plummer. I'm not quite sure. But one of the interesting things about the screenplay, and I think there's something where you know they couldn't spend time with Jeffrey Wigand because of the legal implications of the non-disclosure agreements and things like that that were discussed in the movie. But I think the either man or I think it was Eric Roth was able to spend some time with him or watched a deposition with him. I think that's more what it was. He'd watched some videotape of him and he kind of came away thinking, you know, I don't really like this guy. He's not very likable. He's not a warm person. And, you know, I've watched subsequent film clips with Wigan from the time, the obviously the 60 minutes piece that this is all based on. Uh, and Crow is doing a very realistic Wigand impersonation and impression almost. But he was 20 years younger than Wigand. He was 35 pounds lighter. He had the wrong hair color. Uh, he completely was not physically right for the part whatsoever. The Insider. Yeah, at the time, definitely the most difficult job I'd done. I got contacted by Michael Mann, you know, and, and he asked me to fly down to Los Angeles and talk to him. And he sent me the script and I read it. I couldn't work out what character that he wanted me to play because it was a, a script full of middle-aged men. I, I rang him first and said, I don't, I don't get what character. And he said, the guy, man, the, the lead guy, you know. And I was like, yeah, that guy's, he's 50-something, I'm 30-something. Michael said, look, just come and see me. Let's come and talk to me, you know. We had a very, very long conversation without any fences and we talked about this and that to do with society and corporate malfeasance and blah 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 blah, blah. And, it was, and it was a great chat you know 
And I said to him, look, I, uh, I don't get why you want me to play this character. I'm, just, I'm not the age. I, I don't look anything like him. Michael sort of came around from behind his desk and he said, listen, man, I, I didn't uh, fly down here because of what you looked like. And he put his hand on my chest. He said, I flew you down to meet you because of what you have in here. And pushing that, you know. And it was like in that moment, I was like, I'm going to work with this guy. I'm going to do anything he wants. I'm going to climb any mountain. So he really worked out who I was because he freaking got a hook in me very deeply. And so the physical transformation required was he had to gain 35 pounds. He dyed his hair multiple times to get it this kind of grayed, you know, uh, look. He had two hours of makeup applied for age spots and lines and things of that sort. Jeffrey is, you know, uh, a nice fellow, but he's kind of an uncomfortable fellow. And he'd had a very strange journey, you know, where he begins in the Bronx and ends up sort of working in Japan and and doing all these things that that, that gave his voice such a crazy, colourful array because, you know, now he's working in the tobacco industry, for example, and he's working in Kentucky. So as a scientist, he's never used words connected to the tobacco industry. So when he says those words, they have a pronounced southern lilt. But a lot of the time, he has that Bronx base. But the Bronx base is also infused with the fact that he spoke Japanese for a number of years in his life. So I'm looking at it going, what the fuck do I do with this? You know, it was a bit of a mind-blowing experience. So what you're saying is it isn't enough that you fired me for no good reason. Now you question my integrity. On top of the humiliation of being fired, you threaten me. You threaten my family. It never crossed my mind not to honor my agreement. I will tell you, Mr. Sandifer, and Brown and Williamson too, fuck me. Well, fuck you. Because what he was able to contain was this... Uh, kind of, I think of Russell Crowe, I think of such a powerful actor, right? I think of rage, violence contained within. And in this role, he's playing a man of science, but the rage outlet, I think, is in being wronged, is in, as he sort of acknowledges in the film, and as I, as I read Michael Mann say, of Jeffrey Wigand, like, you know, he's a flawed hero for us in this film because he took the $300,000 a year job at a big tobacco company, and he may have told himself that he was doing that to make cigarettes safer. But part of it is the $300,000 salary, the country club membership, the life that he inhabits somewhat uncomfortably in the beginning of the film. And a lot of man's messaging in his filmic choices are about how this person was in a comfortable life, but unhappy, but also unsuited to figure out how to become happy when that life was taken away. And that's part of the drama of really the Russell Crowe portion of the film. And then the irony, of course, is that Lowell Bergman becomes, uh, arrives at a similar place. His livelihood is also threatened. Uh, his, his employers are doing the wrong thing. And it's up to him to on his own, call it out and suffer whatever consequences there may be. And that's the interesting sort of, you know, uh, parallel track that both of these performances run on. 
Now, talking a little bit about the creative team that Mann assembled to help him realize his vision for this film, which is very much a Michael Mann vision film, the visual language, the the, all the technical elements of the filmmaking, as ever with Michael Mann, are just worthy of basking in unto themselves, almost unrelated to the subject matter. You could admire the technical achievement of the filmmaking. It's just at the highest, highest, highest level. Everything is thought out. Everything is for a purpose. It's just incredible to watch any of his films and the way that they're put together. The key members of his team here are that Dante Spinotti was the cinematographer, He's worked on, like many of the people that I'm going to name here, he worked on multiple Michael Mann films. Uh, he shot Heat. He shot Last of the Mohicans. He shot Manhunter, an early Michael Mann film. Um, and the film was edited by three guys who Mann has also worked with on numerous of his features. Uh, William Goldenberg, David Rosenblum, and Paul Rubel. The casting was by Bonnie Timmerman. Great job as ever. And the music is interesting. It's by Peter Bork and Lisa Gerard. Lisa Gerard is maybe best known to denizens of the 80s, early 90s music world as one half of Dead Can Dance. And her singing can be heard throughout the film. And just a very kind of specific type of otherworldly singing paired with electronic music score that lends this film a certain vibe musically. There's a funny music vibe also. This was, I think this is a 1999 film. And there was a moment, a year or two, where this finger-picked guitar filigree was in every dramatic film. I recall it also being in uh, like Siriana or... Um, what's the one with, you know, this kid's a, this kid's a high school drug addict and then it follows the drugs. And I think, I think Benicio del Toro was in it and maybe Sean Penn or Michael Douglas, whatever that film was kind of famously used what sounds like the exact same picked finger picked guitar filigree. They use it here too. When I listened to that, I kind of laughed. creative bona fides of the film are just out of this world, of course. And the phenomenal screenplay. I mean, Eric Roth and Mann just, I think, wrote an amazing screenplay. And again, all of the ancillary characters, characters that don't even speak, you know, there's people that threaten Russell Crowe's character or seem to threaten his character just by their mere presence. Some of them have lines, some of them don't. But the ones that don't have lines, I'm thinking of the guy at the driving range who's wearing a full suit and perfectly executing a flawless golf swing while Russell Crowe, 
you know, tries to work out some of his frustrations on the driving range. And he just stands there and, and, and looks at Crow. And he's so imposing. And his, his uh, physicality is so specifically threatening that it's, again, just something accomplished without having to resort to dialogue or overt scenes of a chase or anything like that. And I was looking at Mann's filmography, and I think at the time he made this, this is kind of the best run of Mann's career. From 92 to 99, you know, basically 10 years, starting with The Last of the Mohicans in 1992, Heat in 95, and The Insider in 99. After that, um, does it get a little spotty? I think it just depends on your tastes as a director, I have to be honest and say, I've never seen Ali, which was the next film he did after The Insider. I've never seen that all the way through. I started to watch it when it came out, and it just, I, I don't know why I didn't get into it. I'd have to give it another chance. Not a big Will Smith fan. I'm not sure if that turned me off, but I'm a huge Michael Mann fan, so I think I'm going to have to eventually see it. Collateral, I'm a huge fan of, which came out after Ali in 2004. I think that's a brilliant film, a very underrated film. Two great performances from Jamie Foxx and Tom Cruise. That's a film I'd love to, to rewatch again. And, you know, I'm a Miami Vice film apologist. Sorry. Not sorry. But man's film adaptation of his TV series Miami Vice, troubled production due to Colin Farrell's uh, well-publicized problems at the time with drugs and alcohol, which is, I think, very visible on his face in the film. But which also kind of works, it has to be said. You know, it's, does it have some flaws? Sure. Is it sort of as bad as for some reason people tend to think it is? No, not at all. I don't know why people, maybe they think so fondly of something that they don't really watch, which is Miami Vice, the TV show. It's one of those pop culture things that maybe occupies a certain space where you're supposed to be so reverential towards it that any subsequent adaptation is just not going to be met positively? I don't know. I think if you watch the Miami Vice TV show, it's a pretty run-of-the-mill, dramatic, crime-based TV series of its time. not like one of the greatest TV series ever made. It's certainly got style and it's got use of music and all kinds of things that are cool about it. Crockett tubs, you can't argue with that. The boats, the cars, great guest casting. But let's, you know, let's not, let's not call it Gamora or the Bureau. And so I don't really get why people tend to really dump on Miami Vice as a movie when I think it's got a lot of 
stylistic things going for it. Public Enemies, I didn't see that. I think that's famously probably not very good. Black Hat, I did see. Yikes. 2015, not good. And I did very much enjoy the one episode that he directed of the TV series Tokyo Vice, which I mentioned a little bit here. You know, I'd read this book, not really a big fan of the book, even though it's set in a space, a crime type space that I really do like and appreciate. Some of the things that I didn't like about the book, I then found uh, a bit represented in subsequent episodes. But Mann's episode that he directed is really good and really shows you, it's really worth watching a couple of episodes of that series because if you ever wonder what difference a director could make, it's just fair to wonder. You know, I mean, a lot of times there's a cult of directing and movie making is such a collaborative effort that like a quarterback on an NFL team, they probably get too much credit when things work out and too much blame when things don't. If you watch the first episode of Tokyo Vice and then watch the second or third episode, it's really instructive to, to, to look at what's different. And uh, you have the same cast members and, you know, ostensibly the same script writers. There's something missing that I found anyway. You can check it out for yourself. Now, of course, upcoming, he has a couple interesting films. For, well, first of all, he made Ferrari, which we're going to see pretty soon, which stars Adam Driver, uh, Shailene Woodley. We've seen photos of this. Uh, Jack O'Connell's in it. I think a lot of people expect this to be, quote, a return to form for Michael Mann, if he, to the extent that he needs to return to form. He's also doing a miniseries about uh, Vietnam, which is listed in his upcoming credits. It's called Hugh 1968. And then, of course, he's been rumored to be working on Heat 2. And I mentioned this when the book came out. He, he wrote a book, a novelization with Meg Gardner um, that follows the events of the film Heat. And it's really worth reading. If you're a Heat fan, it's a great uh, continuation of the backstory to some characters and a look forward to the Krisha Harrelis character specifically. So I'm not sure how they're going to do this as a movie, although I did read something that said like Pacino was attached. I'm not sure because I guess Vincent, you do see more Vincent Hanna, but it's more the beginning of Vincent Hanna. So, you know, it's an opportunity to have a younger Vincent Hanna, a younger Neil McCauley, a younger Chris Harris. And I think one of the challenges will be one of the most gripping parts of the book was Chris Harris's life in the immediate year or so after the events of Heat. I'm not sure how they could do that with Val Kilmer being so much older and obviously having the vocal difficulties that were on display in Top Gun Maverick. But man is getting back to work. I think it should be interesting. I also see that he's got a, a Sam Giancana crime film set in the 40s and the 50s, which says it's in development. That would be great. And sort of a period film for man would be interesting to see. I'd love to see him do that. I guess he would have done that in the... Ali film, uh, which I need to see. But at this time, like I said, this three film run, I think is really probably the pinnacle of his, the, the, the flashy hot part of his career. Last of the Mohicans, Heat, The Insider. Now I remember going to see The Insider in the theater in 1999. I think it came out in November. And what's funny is, you know, now 
uh, the guy on Yellowstone, uh, Cole Hauser, and his father, Wings. Which one? Wings or Cole? Yes, Wings Hauser. Is, I'm going to play a clip where you'll, you'll hear him berated by the great Bruce McCall. But Wingshauser plays a part in the film. And I remember going to see this. I think we saw it in the East Village in New York City in 1999. And I remember that Wingshauser was seated just a couple of rows in front of us as we watched this film. He was there with a bunch of friends. And he was obviously there to see himself and to see this film. I always remember that. It's just kind of funny to me to think of being such a sort of big Michael Mann fan in 1999, that like opening day, opening weekend, there I am, you know, in the center row. (laughs) I think I dragged my now wife, who wasn't yet my wife, to go along for this two hour plus sort of talky news magazine, you know, film. But I've always loved it. You know, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about sort of how I felt about it watching it this time. But I did remember seeing it when it came out. Now, another amazing thing when you watch this again, which I hope you'll do, watch the opening scene. The first three minutes of the film are (laughs) so extraordinary because of the visual and technical storytelling displayed in this. It's not really a montage because there's some dialogue, but it's basically the Lowell character traveling to visit a sheikh in an Islamic country, and he's setting the groundwork for a subsequent Mike Wallace interview, which we also then see. What I always loved about Michael Mann in every film, I think about also when Neil McCauley steals the ambulance at the beginning of Heat. You get the sense that Michael Mann, you know, visits some of the locations and he he seems to be taking a list both visually and auditorially of sounds, representative images, so that in this montage of this incredible kind of assemblage of things that includes like the dusty bumper of a beaten up car, you have these trinkets tinkling on a rear view mirror, um, you have this extreme close up shot inside a blindfold so that you're really seeing the fibers of the cotton blindfold that are covering Lowell's face and the sounds that accompany these shots is so extraordinary. You know exactly what's going on and you also don't know exactly what's going on. And that's such a specifically cool thing to arrive at. I think where you know exactly where you are, you have an intimation of what's going on, but you don't really know what's going on until after the scene concludes and you see that Mike Wallace then does this interview. The disorientation is deliberate. This is what the Lowell character is experiencing. And it's showing us how far he's willing to go to get something he knows to be valuable, which in this case is the interview with the shake. And this is counterposed, if that's a word, with 
Russell Crowe's firing as Jeffrey Wigand, except of course you never see him, you know, and again, this is where like, I think Kira and I talked a lot about in the color of money screenplay that one of the amazing things about the work that Richard Price and Scorsese and Newman did in that film was they really talked through moments that lesser screenwriters, lesser filmmakers would hit more on the nose. So it's obviously got to be alluring, at least on the script side of things, before you cast actors like Michael Gambon and Russell Crowe uh, to, to write a firing scene, because it's very dramatic. This, this person's career is being ended under circumstances which set the whole film in motion. And even though they didn't write that, once you're on the set and you have Michael Gambon and you have Russell Crowe, couldn't you imagine thinking like, you know what, let's watch these two go head to head. Let's have him fire him so we can have these two actors in this scene. Uh, but they don't do that. The way man shows us that Jeffrey Wigand has been fired is that there's a party going on in a lab and in his glass office, he is separated from the party and you cannot hear the party, although you can see that you would be able to hear the party if you were in the room. He is packing up his stuff. That's how they show it. And when he walks out the building, there are these intimations of ominous threat security guard speaks into his earpiece, uh, some signature Michael Mann camera work, extreme close up over Crow's shoulder so that you actually can see through his eyeglass lens, crazy things like that. And of course, we do get this great scene later between Michael Gambon and Russell Crowe, where Gambon is oozing uh, <laughs> such oily charm in threatening the Wigand character. I wanted to play a little of this scene because... Jeff's a premier golfer. What are you, two handicap? Seven. Just right there. What are you, two handicap? You know, in handicap, the lower the better. So he's purposely putting Wigand on the back foot because he knows he's not a two. He forces Wigand to correct him and admit that he's a worse golfer than the Gambon character is making him out to be. Just part of the little corporate gamesmanship and he gets out there and he has five strokes on us he has more concentration than anybody i've ever met it's spooky how he can concentrate i'd rather play than talk about it what did you want to see me about i don't like being back here well, jeffrey says exactly what's on his mind most people consider what they're saying, social skills. Jeffrey just charges right ahead. Now, I know you understood the nature of the confidentiality portion of your severance agreement with Brown and Williamson, Jeff. Chapter and verse. Yeah, I know you do. You know, I came up through sales. One of the reasons I was a great salesman was I never made a promise I couldn't keep. I knew that ever broke my promise, I'd suffer the consequence. Is that a threat? We worked together for what was it? Three years? Now the work we did here is confidential, not for public scrutiny, any more than our one's family matters. You're threatening my family now too? <laughs> also, by the way, these two guys going head to head is obviously phenomenal, and this scene is worth watching. If you're not gonna watch the film, you can find this uh, on YouTube, and I'll put a link to it in the episode notes. But I think it escaped me until watching it this time that the other lawyer in the room is played by Andy Travis, Gary Sandy himself. Baby, if you've ever wondered, wondered whatever became of me, 
I'm living on the air in Cincinnati Cincinnati WKRP is doing a heel turn in the back of this scene as a tough corporate lawyer who is going to continue to threaten the Russell Crowe character. And here's a little Andy, a little of his dialogue. And if I don't? If we arrive at the conclusion that you're acting in bad faith, we would terminate right now payouts under your severance package you and your family's medical benefits, and initiate litigation against you, Mr. Wigand. So good. So creepy. So if you didn't think Andy Travis had it in him, well, you're wrong. So you do have this scene between Gambon and Crow, which I guess does obviate the need for the firing scene, because this is so much more sinister. This is so much more the application of just brute force and that charm, which Gambon can only so much obscure his accent. He's trying to do a Southern accent. I guess Southern accents have their roots somewhat in, in an English accent, but there's something about Gambon where you just don't care that it's like a bit of a mixed accent that he slips a little bit here and there. And he kind of disappears from the movie, except for some video clips after this. But man, what a great cameo. Just the definition of an amazing cameo. And another thing I really like in the beginning of the movie is how man shows you that the Lowell character who lives in, I believe, Berkeley, California with Lindsay Krause, who plays his second wife, I assume. Her name's Sharon. They're all kind of, he's on the phone. They're in bed in the morning. They're dressed. They're kind of reading newspapers, drinking coffee and stuff. And two, two boys come in, kind of college-age boys. And it's just through a line. It's like, hey, dad. Hey, Sharon. Doesn't say, hey, mom. And she says, hey, Jake. So just in there, you kind of, you intuitively know this is not her child. This is a blended family. It's again, this really efficient, smart screenwriting and filmmaking that I think it's just a pleasure to watch that kind of thing applied to everything in the film. And just talking about the cast, I mean, in addition to Pacino, to, to Russell Crowe, Christopher Plummer's Mike Wallace is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I kind of said off the cuff, and I, I think I mean it. Is this the greatest portrayal of a known person? <laughs> like, it's so perfectly Mike Wallace that it just couldn't be better. I just think he's so good. Diane Venora, uh, again, a Michael Mann staple, playing different to her role in Heat, where she's the long-suffering spouse of Vincent Hanna, the Al Pacino character. Here she's, she becomes a suffering spouse, but kind of because she's not really cut out to go the distance that Jeffrey Wigand is committed to go to, to do the right thing. She wants the country club life. You can already see that their marriage is a bit fractured at the very beginning. He comes back from being fired and she's sitting outside. He doesn't stop to talk to her. He just goes in, pours a drink and interacts with his kid in a way that shows you he's a caring father and a man of science. So I believe there was some litigation after the film where this wife of Wigan's tried to sue Disney for her portrayal, although they didn't use her real name or likeness. So I'm not sure what happened with that, but I think there was someone left unhappy as a result. And Mike Wallace himself was deemed uh, very unhappy and let Michael Mann know that uh, while they were, even while they were making the film, I guess he'd read the screenplay and 
was very, very upset that he was shown to be not doing the right thing. And Michael Mann, to his credit, sort of was like, hey, you know, I think if you watch the whole film, you come off pretty good in the end because the Mike Wallace character does come around in the end and takes a, a really funny stand uh, against uh, Don Hewitt, brilliantly portrayed uh, by Philip Baker Hall. And he does come around and side with Lowell in a key moment at the end of the film. So I think Mike Wallace does come out looking complicated and messy and vainglorious, but also ultimately committed to doing the right thing. So Mike Wallace's displeasure was was definitely misplaced, uh, but it was there. Philip Baker Hall, as I said, as Don Hewitt is great. Lindsey Krauss is great. Uh, Debbie Mazar has a small role. Stephen Tobolowski, really good as a CBS News lackey. I mean, the pres- I guess he's the president of CBS News. But yeah, so here he is. Hello, Lowell. That's Hi. his voice. Don? There has been so much soul searching about this Weigand. I've decided we should cut an alternate version of the show without his interview. So what happened to Ms. Caparelli's checking with outside counsel first, all that crap? That's happening. And hopefully we won't have to use the alternate, but we should have it in the can. I'm not touching my phone. I'm afraid you are. No, I'm not. We're doing this with or without you, Lowell. If you like, I can assign another producer to edit your show. Since when has the uh, paragon of investigative journalism allowed lawyers to determine the news content on 60 Minutes? It's an alternate version. So what if we have an alternate version? And I don't think her being cautious is so damned unreasonable. So now, if you will excuse me, gentlemen, Mr. Rather's been complaining about his chair again. Now, that's just a great exit line for Stephen Tobolowski because it shows his oily unctuousness. He thinks he can he can just come in here, drop this bomb and then skirt away on a bit of a Dan Rather joke. It's indicative of the type of just superlative casting that is represented throughout the entire film. All of the performances are so smart and well judged. And I think it's it's well worth watching them. And I want to particularly single out the three lawyers that take Crow's deposition as Jeffrey Wigand in the Mississippi Attorney General's case against the tobacco companies. And Calm Fior as Dick Scruggs, who is just so perfectly <laughs> displayed. He's first seen piloting his own jet that carries the other two lawyers. And he is, again, the type of completely thought out character that you don't see much of in the film. But every time you see him, he's so completely himself. His house, it's actually, they actually shot at the real lawyer's house. And it just has this, these trappings of wealth and power that even though he is on the right side, he's also a player in the game and he's not at risk. And it's just so well done to film these things in the opulence, the easy opulence of his home and this beautiful lawn that overlooks the Gulf of Mississippi. And the Wigand character is alone. You know, Lowell is at that point still safely ensconced within the establishment at 60 Minutes. Dick Scruggs is a powerful and wealthy lawyer and attorney who is trying to do the right thing, but he's trying to sue the tobacco companies, and he's certainly going to benefit from that. And Bruce McGill plays Ron Motley. Now, Bruce, Bruce McGill, I think, is best known 
I wonder if he thinks that's the best way for him to be known as playing D-Day in Animal House. Oh, Larry, good. I see you've met D-Day. Good, you're having a nice time. It's good, good. But Bruce McGill, man, powerhouse, amazing moment in this film. And he, I want to play you a little bit of this wonderful Bruce McGill scene, because this is one of the best scenes in the whole film. And it's the one that has Wings Hauser is the smirking lawyer you'll hear uh, smacked down here by Bruce McGill, just powerful, powerful scene, which is actually filmed in the actual spot where the Wigand deposition did take place in the real story. Now, I'll proceed with my deposition of my witness. Does it act as a That's Wingshauser here. I am instructing you not to answer that question. In accordance to the terms of the contractual obligations undertaken by you, not to disclose any information about your work at the Brown and Williamson Tobacco Company, and in accordance with the force and effect of the temporary restraining order that has been entered against you by the court in the state of Kentucky. That means you don't talk. Mr. Modley, we have rights here. Well, you got rights and lefts, ups and downs and middles. So what? You don't get to instruct anything around here. This is not North Carolina, not South Carolina, nor Kentucky. This is the sovereign state of Mississippi's proceeding. Wipe that smirk off your face! Dr. Wagon's deposition will be part of this record. And I'm going to take my witness's testimony whether the hell you like it or not! It's such a good moment. That is an actor moment par excellence. Bravo, Bruce McGill. Talk about delivering the fucking goods, delivering the fucking mail. Holy shit. What's so great about that delivery, that line delivery is as Wingshauser is sitting there smirking because he perceives these threats to be idle coming from the Bruce McCall, Ron Motley character as he's smirking it's the way that the bruce mccall ron motley character delivers those two lines in a run-on fashion that's what's amazing right uh it's the way in which he explodes and says wipe that smirk off your face after he completes this line just before it this is the sovereign state of mississippi's proceeding wipe that smirk off your face i mean that's the genius of the delivery this is the sovereign state of... It's just the explosion. Bruce McGill, the actor playing Ron Motley. Now, Bruce had had surgery about six weeks before that scene. And after about four or five takes, he was, wasn't feeling so good. And it turned out, when he went back in the hospital a week later, that he had ripped literally had, oh, uh, some stitches came undone. He had to go okay. back in. And uh, the Wingshauser plays it so well in response. Like th- that's a moment in a film that you've seen before where it's like, it doesn't always happen that way. If you think, I always think about this in movies. If you have having a, if you're having a really intense argument with someone, it, it doesn't happen that one of you delivers a devastating line and the other person immediately is deflated and realizes they lost the argument. That's a theatrical construct. 
It doesn't happen in real life. It happens in movies and in plays because writers need it to happen. And so usually when that happens, I think it tends to ring, not false per se, because actors can pull it off, but it always strikes me as a construct. It always stri- I always think, okay, there's a device. Now here, it's Bruce McCall's violent outburst that salvages that device and makes it something truly exceptional. So kudos to him for being amazing in this. And there's some small parts played by bigger actors like Rip Torn plays this guy, John Scanlon, who's a guy who uh, digs up dirt on Wygand. And he just has one, he has two scenes, but because it's Rip Torn, they're, they're leavened with this gravitas that he has. And so I think it just, you can't say enough about how good the casting is and uh, how well they're served by the screenplay and how well they're used by man as a director. And I also want to talk a bit about Russell Crowe at this point in his career as well. So really, um, up to this point, he was probably best known for playing Bud White in L.A. Confidential. He'd been around for a bit. Uh, Romper Stomper, I think some other Australian films. But L.A. Confidential was 1997. And he was making Mystery Alaska at the time that he auditioned for Michael Mann. When I said I wanted to use Russell Crowe, I got some of the same kind of reaction I did when I said I wanted to use Daniel Day-Lewis and Lassie Mohicans. Hmm. Australian, Australian, he's 33 years old. Right. He's not American. He's not from the Bronx. And then by way of university, hmm. living in Louisville. Doesn't have a PhD in anything. A PhD in anything. And uh, uh, so it was, it, was, it was not a choice. When we sat down, he said to me, I said, I don't know why I'm here. And... Uh, <laughs> And I'd flown him down from, uh, from Canada. He was working on Mystery Alaska. And he had a beard, and it was his one day off. And any actor on the one day off, he's doing two things. He's, he's recharging his batteries. He's trying to divest himself of all of last week. And then he's trying to orientate himself to all of next week. So if he's any kind of an actor, he's going to, be, he's going to do terrible in a reading on that day. And we sat around the table, just as you and I are sitting right here, and only the two of us, and we read two, three hours, and I thought this is going absolutely nowhere. And uh, we hit one scene, and Russell, uh, Russell, uh, it's a scene in which Russell learns that the interview he taped is never going to air. And he's lost his family to speak out. And he he said, you mean mean what I I taped is what I had interviewed, everything I had to say, uh, uh, which would have meant something to my kids is never going to see the light of day. And as he said, I'm never going to see the light of day. He just sunk. I can't imitate him. He just sunk. That day in that room with you. That day in that room with me. And I just felt, I f- didn't see, I felt the, the inner annihilation uh, of, of this man. And in that moment, sometimes as directors, you know when you know, and I just knew that this, this is it. This is the guy. 1999, The Insider was probably the last film before he became a global box office phenomena in Gladiator, which came out the following year in 2000. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? That made him the biggest actor in the world. And it's funny now, I mean, funny in quotes, to think that Russell Crowe is still around, but not at all kind of working at the level that he was working during this brief, brief moment on top. 
And maybe that's because of his behavior during his brief, brief moment on top. It's not like he's any less talented as an actor. He's had some big parts uh, in subsequent years. But if you look at his his filmography, once you get past kind of Cinderella Man, a really underrated Russell Crowe film is the 310 to Yuma remake. He's fantastic in that. I really like him in American Gangster in 2007. Uh, once you get after that, it starts to get a little, a little more spotty. Robin Hood in 2010, that didn't work. Les Miserables, 2012. He played Noah, 2014. Really liked him in The Nice Guys in 2016. That's that's not a great Shane Black film, but it's got enough style to to keep you through it. You know, I'm a big Kiss Kiss Bang Bang fan, which is a Shane Black film with Val Kilmer and Robert Downey Jr. I was really excited for The Nice Guys because it seemed to kind of be in a similar area. But, you know, at this time, you're kind of getting Russell Crowe here just before that all happens to him. And he happens to us. Just great stuff. And this, I, I had to play a little bit of the Christopher plumber part. I love this. Tobacco companies employ to keep a lid on information that might be damaging. Is there information that people should have that they're not going to have because you're not going to broadcast this interview? Yeah. So he's, he's now watching this piece where he gave an interview and he, he tried to do a mea culpa in this interview. And what happens in the beginning of this piece is he realizes that Stephen Tobolowsky character had it edited. And all that remains is him going, yes. Today, CBS News President Eric Cluster defended the network's decision not to broadcast key portions of the controversial interview. Mr. Cluster said, quote, the atmosphere is tougher than ever. Where's the rest? Dan? Where the hell's the rest? Nebraska football fans voice their criticism. You cut it! Coming up in Bernard Goldberg's America. You cut the guts out of what I said. It was the time consideration. Time? Bullshit! You corporate lackey. Who told you your incompetent little fingers have the requisite skills to edit me? I'm trying to band-aid a situation here, and you're Mike. too dim to... Mike. Mike. Mike? Mike! Try Mr. Wallace. We work in the same corporation doesn't mean we work in the same profession. Now, what, what are you going to do now? You're going to finesse me? Lawyer me some more? I've been in this profession in 50 fucking years. You and the people you work for are destroying the most respected, the highest rated, the most profitable show on this network. You got Mike Wallace finding his footing again and reclaiming the stage and just telling off two people who need to be told off. Gina Gershon does a great job as the corporate lawyer lackey. And Plummer's performance is just phenomenal. So, so good. So I wanted to end by just saying, you know, when I watched this again, God, I got to be honest and say for the first time, I saw more of kind of maybe why the film wasn't a success when it came out, because it pretty famously wasn't. It got nominated for seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Actor for Russell Crowe. I uh, don't think it won any of them, except maybe some technical ones, if that. But it wasn't a box office success. And again, they spent a lot of money on it. Now, when I watched it this time, and again, I'm a huge Michael Mann fan, so it's always worth watching. But for some reason, it plays, does it play a little bit like Much Ado About Nothing? It's kind of like pitched at a time when now we have so little faith and trust in the institutions of our society, of our government, of our news media, that it's kind of quaint to base an entire almost three-hour film on 
ooh, journalists, guess what? Corporate influence in journalism causes them to not maybe do the right thing for a while. But guess what? In the end, it all is okay because the New York Times comes in and publishes it and saves the day. It Does it feel a little, yes, it feels a little bit like of a different time. Maybe I'm mourning the fact that we once lived in a time where we had more blind trust and faith in the institutions that prop up our society and in the veracity of journalists of any stripe to be committed to something uh, regardless of the pressures brought to bear on them from their corporate masters. Maybe that's what it is. It's hard to imagine a movie getting made today that features a movie star like Russell Crowe in such an unlikely characterization, like an unlikable characterization is what I meant to say. You know, it's hard to root for this guy. And the fact that you do root for him is entirely up to the actor. And it's because Russell Crowe is good enough to show these glimmers of humanity and wry humor and affection for his daughters primarily uh, that he embodies that so strongly and so emotionally that it makes this otherwise brusque, uncomfortable, prickly human being someone that you can root for. So it's a different experience watching it now. Uh, don't know how well the movie is aged, but if you're a fan of journalism movies like I am, All the President's Men, I think that's what the studio chiefs thought they were getting. They thought they were getting a modern All the President's Men. And I do think that the scenes that take place in and around 60 Minutes are done with the typical verisimilitude that you would expect of Michael Mann. And I'm a sucker for it because I love that heyday of 60 Minutes, which was appointment viewing for me for you know 25 years. Um, so for those reasons and for the technical abilities of Michael Mann as a filmmaker, it's always worth checking out and revisiting The Insider if you get a chance. So thanks for joining me again. And I believe I'll be back next week with an episode about Fast Times at Ridgemont High with my frequent guest and friend, Ted Jessup. I'm really looking forward to that. I saw a screening of the film with Amy Heckerling giving a bit of a chat afterwards, and that's going to inform sort of the episode itself. So I'm looking forward to that. And thanks again for listening. And I will talk to you soon on the Full Casting Crew podcast. Thank you once more.